Can blockchain technology revolutionize Opportunity Zones real estate investing? Find out on today's episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Want to learn more about Opportunity Zones and network with other professionals? Come to the Opportunity Zone Super Conference in Dallas, April 3 through 4. Visit ozdfw.com to learn more and buy tickets, and use promo code OPPORTUNITYDB to save an additional 25%. Welcome back for another episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Activated Capital's Opportunity Zone Fund launched earlier this year, and like many Opportunity Zone funds, they seek a double bottom line both financial and social returns. But unlike many Opportunity Zone funds, Activated Capital is planning a security token offering. And I'm excited to dive into exactly what that means today as I'm joined by Activated Capital's managing partners, Josh Burrell and Lane Campbell. Before founding Activated Capital, Josh previously worked at credit rating agency Moody's and investment banker Lazard Asset Management. And Lane is a founding member of the Forbes Technology Council and has a background in quantum computing and Bitcoin mining. They join me today from their offices in New York City. Josh and Lane, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, great to have you guys on today. So first, tell me about Activated Capital. What's behind the name Activated? And what is the mission of your Opportunity Zone Fund? Yeah, I mean, I can take a stab at that, and then Lane, if you want to dive in thereafter. But um, really, the, the impetus was... Is, my um, prior role at Midas Capital, we had two properties in what you now call opportunity zones. But you know, through Lane and I's just previous experience in firms, that we've always invested in what you know we're now calling opportunity zones. But uh, we always felt that just having that spark, that activation, having that catalyst, has been a way that we've just been excited on on our backgrounds and missions before. And that was really the the aha moment when the Opportunity Zone legislation came out, where we could then have that actual culture and, and double bottom line. So that's where, you know, we like to say I am activated and uh, working with Praveen Parma and having that movement. And that's where we feel that just we want to have that transformative change, that activation. Whereas in ten years time, we don't want to have Opportunity Zones a mile further from where they are now. Good. It's a it's like a catalyzing mechanism, so to speak. Lane, did you have anything else to add? Yeah, you know, I've um, been kind of working with uh, Parveen and the Activated Movement since its inception, and you know, one I've known Josh for a couple of years now. And when uh, this Opportunity Zone legislation uh, kind of passed, and all this um, very double bottom line oriented investment opportunity really. Uh, sprang up the the activated name really made a lot of sense and uh, it it really uh, is is a movement about helping people uh, and entrepreneurs and uh, it it just uh, there's a lot a lot of crossover so so it it made a lot of sense to choose that name for this this type of fund and by Parveen you mean you're referring to Parveen Panwar is that right you're one of your senior advisors 
Correct. Yes. And he's the founder of the I'm Activated movement, I'mActivated.com. He developed a set of principles he calls the paper principles for uh, entrepreneurs and and just folks who are, are trying to uh, make the world a better place to follow. Good. I'll, I'll be sure to link to uh, that in the show notes if, if my listeners want to read a little bit more about that. Um, but if I, could we, let's back up a minute now, and I want to learn more about your backgrounds. And Josh, I'll start with you. Can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and how your career has progressed to this point? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, I was born and raised in the Midwest, uh, third generation, single family home, real estate developer, family, um, you know, but went the finance and accounting route as opposed to ground up construction route, um, you know, moved, as you mentioned, to New York City and got my first job at, at Moody's Investor Services working at Seven World Trade. And I focused on uh, CMBS or commercial mortgage-backed bonds and, and uh, residential mortgage-backed bonds, but from a, a debt side. And then, uh, you know, worked hard, got the opportunity to live in Hong Kong, Singapore, London, and Paris for the next few years. And just all analyzing real estate deals, but um, from just that ground-up perspective and from a risk management perspective. But thereafter, I went back to New York to work for Colonial Consulting. It's a... Um, an outsource CFO. It's a, basically it's an investment consultant that manages over fifty billion in assets, and ninety five percent of their clients, we like to say, um, were foundations and endowments. So I spent a large part of my time tilting the investment strategy to a environmental, social, or governance and ESG or a SRI or socially responsible investment strategy. So there was roughly two hundred fifty nonprofits, foundations, endowments, and everyone had a different um, view on what they classified as impact investing. So just understanding the space, but then we, you know, on the investment committee and just analyzing real estate and private equity deals, doing a lot of co-investments, a lot of direct deals that way. After that, I uh, went to Lazard Asset Management where I worked on the capital advisory group and worked with families and family offices. And that's where you know, investing, I really got a good feel for the taxable investor. So nonprofit were very, you know, agnostic or exempt from taxes, whereas individuals are very tax sensitive. Um, and, you know, at the same time, they still have a different view of impact. So, you know, just understanding the landscape of real estate and trying to articulate that to all of my clients. And then from there, I went to Midas Capital, where we invested in primarily commercial hospitality assets in the Midwest, and you know I was on the um, one of four of the investment team committee members, and that's where you know we've always had that value tilt and that opportunistic rehab renovation approach, and that's where we had two hotels that were now in opportunity zones, but they were just good investment deals. They just there was a lot of opportunities for growth, and and that's where Lane and I. You know, eventually, um, kind of synced up and said we would like to do this and and do it right to have that culture to have the that bottom double bottom line. So I went to to Harvard, uh, had a core and real estate approach um, and executive education that way, CFA background. So it's um, you know I've always had that double bottom line mentality throughout my entire career, but I think this is finally the the avenue and vehicle where you know that's it's that truly where investors don't have to really give up the financial piece in order to have impact, which is great. 
Right. And like you said, it does this, this program in particular, the opportunity zones program caters largely to individuals and family offices and in corporation corporations to a certain extent, much less so, uh, you know, the institutional investors or the nonprofits that tend to avoid capital gains taxes in the first place. Um, but Lane, how about you? Can you give us a little bit of your background? You you have more of a, a computing background, uh, if I understand correctly. Yeah, I've been an entrepreneur and technologist my whole career. So I've been um, building up and selling off uh, tech companies for about 15 years, all small uh, bootstrap businesses. But uh, I got into real estate a few years back advising uh, a uh, founder of a turnkey real estate company called Ohio Cashflow and uh, ended up co-founding a, a brokerage and a property management company with him. But uh, while, while working with him, I just saw these um, amazing cash flow opportunities for investors. Um, and I started talking with different fund managers. This was a few years ago, exploring the concept of a fund at the time. And that's when Josh and I started to chat about this. And, uh, you know, I, I I've seen the real estate industry is going through some massive technological and legislative changes here with, with the introduction of, of uh, blockchain for for the industry. So you know, it's uh, it's an exciting time. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, I want to turn our focus to blockchain technology in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to spend a little time with you guys discussing your Opportunity Zone Fund strategy. Um, I know that your fund seeks what you have referred to already as double bottom line returns, both an economic return and that social impact return. And you have a mission of delivering positive impact to the communities that you invest in. Could you explain a little bit more about what you're doing to that effect? Well, you know, our impact, our transformative change, essentially, you know, we're, we've trademarked an OZ score and, we, you know, it's a derivative from my time at Moody's just to be able to rate and monitor and measure the impact that we have in, in order to create that transformative change. So we have four metrics that we look at and um, that we will be able to measure, but we think that you know opportunity zones in general can almost be seen as a catalyst or an activation um, where that it can be a transformative change within itself if it's done correctly. And what does that mean? You know, we want to be able to measure the impact in terms of the amount of jobs that are created or having a rent to own model where it reduces a lot of the risk of gentrification, or as I mentioned, you know, having an opportunity zone a mile further outside the city is not something that we deem as a successful venture. So we want to be able to have that measurable impact um, in the communities in which we invest, but we want to be able to measure it. We want this catalyst to continue. So we're really passionate about it, but we just want to make sure that it's measured and uh, reported and, and done appropriately. Right. So, in which communities are you? Um, is your does your fund invest in? Yeah. So, we've always been investing and have a career investing in the Midwest and Southeast. We like growing markets in the sense of either population growth or stability. There, there's a few different metrics that we generally will invest, but there's a lot of fragmentation in the real estate market, and we, you know, we'll talk about blockchain about how that streamlines that. But just in real estate in general, we're comfortable and familiar with investing in Ohio. We like Detroit, South side of Chicago, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, you know, what are some of the Toledo, Ohio, uh, Cleveland, Ohio, or some of the, the, the cities that we really like and know well and have great relationships with and can find just really attractive deals that you're not going to find in 
uh, New York and California and Massachusetts. So, I mean, these are a lot of distress in a lot of areas that when you look at the map, there's a lot of low-income census tracts in the areas that we've been investing in for some time. So mostly secondary and tertiary markets staying away from from the big uh, coastal cities for the most part, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, we always say never say never, but we've been a big cheerleader for the secondary and tertiary markets for some time. And, um, you know, finally, the uh, Opportunity Zones give us a little bit more of a platform to talk about it. But uh, we always get excited when it's, you know, having just those two to three metrics. But yeah, we never say never that we wouldn't invest in New York, California, Massachusetts. But you know, that's we like little uh, little to no competition. We like um, the low hanging fruit. And I don't, we can talk about the strategy, too. But, you know, the, the valuations and the property values are still Go, going very going after some of those overlooked areas it, absolutely yeah so we're looking at a renovation model as opposed to ground up construction and we can find you know the values of properties so low that we don't have to take ground up construction and we can just renovate within two to three you know months and have that cash flowing back to our investors within four to six months max which I think is very different than most opportunity zone funds who have to take the ground up construction to meet the regulations. So you mentioned gentrification. I want to talk about that for a second. I know uh, gentrification and specifically resident displacement has been one of the biggest concerns or criticisms of this tax incentive program. Um, And you mentioned that you have developed an OZ score. I wanted you to tell me a little bit more about that and, and what specific steps that you're taking that will ensure that you're delivering positive impact to community residents while minimizing resident displacement. Right. No, I mean, this is one of the things that we talk about a lot. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in order for, in our minds, for Opportunity Zones to have this to be a catalyst and to be successful, we don't want to see an Opportunity Zone literally one mile further outside of the city and having that you know, resident displacement. So we've instituted a rent-to-own model in any of our um, properties, which historically, just to give you some backdrop, a rent-to-own model, if you're unfamiliar with, has been um, fragmented. There's been a lot of predatory practices. There's just a lot of ways where landlords can take advantage and do the exact opposite of what the ultimate goal is. And so we are, are going to say that this is our double bottom line approach. We're not going to have the predatory practice. We're going to institute the OZ score and then also financial literacy. So, and we talk a lot with anyone, but you know, financial literacy is important to no matter who you talk to, but especially important for some of the communities in which we invest. We've partnered with a, um, a nonprofit, which is an acronym. The acronym is FREE, and it stands for Finance Requires Effective Education where all of the, the tenants in, um, in the homes and you know anyone interested in the communities want to have just a bit more knowledge based on what an IRR or a loan value or what it takes to increase your credit score, that is available now to them. It's unbiased. It's completely just a helpful aid. Now, again, they, this is in the double bottom line where they'll have to do the work, but we'll help them. And then pre-screen some of the tenants that will be in a good position in the next two, three, four years, if they do want to have home ownership as a goal, that we can help them work towards that, which ultimately in three, four years time, if we align ourselves and align with 
the tenants and investors, the um, the actual the communities, the residents themselves will be able to let's say put down fifty to a hundred dollars. That would be enough down payment in order to get a loan at that point. So within that time, most of the residents will treat the the homes and properties better too. So there's incentive for investors to really take notice. And that's why we say end-to-end equity participation is critical. We want that activation, but we want that assistance. And we'll be able to measure that now. So just to give you some of the measuring um, scorecard aspects. So right now, one out of 10 residents that are offered a rent-to-own model will generally be successful through that. That's very low in our mind. And a lot of it's just due to predatory practices and lack of trust. So, I mean, we're very clear that it, it is going to take some time to establish that trust and then just establish that relationship and understand that we're just, you know, here to assist in the process and, and help them just learn more about what it takes if that's of interest. But, you know, we would like to at least double it, have 100% um, impact on where it is now and in order to change that moving forward. So, you know, that, that's really the crux of the rent-to-own model, and then just having that alignment and um, affordability. Yeah, your rent-to-own model, that path is unique among uh, among opportunity zone funds, as far as I know. I haven't heard of any others that are doing anything quite like that. And you're actually getting boots on the ground and, and educating these these local communities and these residents about... Um, Absolutely. About financial literacy. That's that's incredible. I, I wouldn't have thought that you could get a down that you could that fifty to one hundred dollar down payment would would be enough to secure a loan. Um, Let's what, talk what, about that. Yeah, I mean, you work together with them. So right now, any renter is going to have to put a security deposit down. Your first and last month's rent. Um, you know, anyone in New York and California can really resonate with that because the rents are so high. But you know, if you're you're working a working family in the Midwest, you may have had a mistake or just not aware of the the implications of credit scores, and you may not have the ability or credit score. So one out of every five Americans have a credit score under 600 points. You know, that's one out of five, and that's you know, it's pretty terrifying. But you know, having that deposit, it becomes a down payment. So you know, we'll put it in escrow, and then let's say little by little, they'll be investing in themselves, in the home and building equity. So back to that example of $50 down, in three years time, they've built enough for the home property value where they would have 10, 5, 10% already built up in equity where they could put up $50, $100, maybe even less, and then still qualify for a loan for the remainder amount where you know, the residents are no longer paying rent they're actually owning the home and uh, paying down a mortgage and building that catalyst, that spark, that snowball effect. Yeah, it's interesting. That's that's great that you offer that you offer that that service to the to the tenants. And I know another thing that makes your fund unique. We were emailing back and forth about it uh, while we were setting up this call today. Is um, your cash flow strategy? You you mm-hmm. you have an accelerated. Um, cash return to your investors. Can you talk about how you accomplish that, what that, what that cash flow strategy is, what it looks like? Sure. Yeah, I know we, we're really confident that this is just what we've been doing, but we're, we're buying fragmented and um, in fragmented markets that are, are good home quality stock that just need a rehab or renovation. 
So we're not taking ground up construction risk. We think from a uh, environmental perspective as well, you know, there are tons of materials, tons of steel, concrete, timber, you know, over the next 20 years, we're going to build a new New York City every month. So that will take so much materials. And, and from an environmental standpoint, we, we want to try to mitigate that and be a bit more creative. So in our model, we're, we're taking a distressed property, and, and Lane can speak to this a lot too in, in Ohio, but it the, the bones of the, the property are great. We'll just rehab it. And the purchase price of these properties are so low, but the rehab is enough to improve the basis. So, I mean, with opportunity zones, as you know, Jimmy, you have to improve the basis of the building, which is bifurcated from the land. And we're able to make that renovation within 30, 60 days, tenant it within 30 days conservatively, or cash flowing within 90 days. So our investors are starting to see the 8% preferred return within, we say, four to six months. Uh, we're kicking that on. So it'll be paid quarterly, and it's not going to take 12, 16, 18 months. I, I can't speak to other funds, but we, we feel that just getting that cash back to our investors just so they can see that and then measure the impact is, is what we're uh, planning to achieve. Are you a fund sponsor, investor, real estate developer, or other participant in the Opportunity Zone ecosystem? I want to take this time to tell you more about the Opportunity Zone Super Conference coming to the Dallas area April 3 through 4. I will be in attendance, and I would love to meet you there. When you attend, you'll gain skills for structuring Opportunity Zone funds, discover methods to manage tax, legal, and business issues, and meet other Opportunity Zone fund sponsors, investors, developers, and service providers. The conference features some of the most innovative Opportunity Zone fund managers in both real estate and venture investing, like Kevin Shields, CEO of Griffin Capital, and the nation's leading Opportunity Zone advocates, attorneys, and consultants, including professionals from the Federal Reserve, Baker McKenzie, and Novogratic. And for a limited time, as a listener of the Opportunity Zones podcast, you can get an additional 25% off your ticket by using promo code OPPORTUNITYDB. Head on over to ozdfw.com to learn more and buy tickets today. Good. Well, what really turned me on to your fund was, uh, was when you mentioned that you guys were planning a security token offering. That, that piqued my interest. So I want to talk to you about that for a little bit. Uh, talk to you about blockchain and distributed ledger technology. I think everyone has heard of Bitcoin, um, which is a cryptocurrency that makes use of blockchain technology, but not everyone listening knows exactly how the technology works, not just Bitcoin now, I will put that aside, but just, just how blockchain technology works. Can, can one of you give me an, a, just a very basic explanation of what blockchain technology is and how it works? Yeah, I mean, I, I can chime in here a little bit too, and Josh can chime in as well, but basically blockchain represents the first technological approach to creating trust between parties without an intermediary involved outside of the technology. Um, and it allows two people who may have never done anything together, maybe geographically uh, in dissimilar locations, to send value between each other in the form of like a Bitcoin to transfer money or to create uh, records of transactions between uh, people buying and selling property. Right. And that, that, that really is the fundamental value blockchain creates. And what are, what are some of the most common misconceptions about blockchain? 
yeah, I think a lot of people start to think blockchain is Bitcoin. Bitcoin is blockchain. Um, and, and it's true that Bitcoin is a blockchain and it's the oldest. Uh, it's not really new anymore. It's been around for about 11 years now. So, uh, you know, I think people are a little amazed sometimes when they hear that. They kind of forget that this uh, this is a mature technology that has been out there, is in use. Um, some of these types of blockchains are getting more widespread adoption. And really, uh, what, what I'm excited about is, is sort of how they're going to uh, disrupt the processes and that, that kind of are costly and slow, especially when you're dealing with like governments and getting uh, different types of, of uh, properties transferred and uh, notaries involved and you know de- deals done. Uh, blockchain represents a real path forward for uh, automation and making those things faster and more reliable. Yeah, it has the potential to eliminate the middleman or and a lot of the red tape, I guess, when when you're going through some of these more complex financial transactions. So I think it lends itself well to to real estate. But in your view, Lane, how will distributed ledger technology really revolutionize real estate investing? Yeah, well, I think what what's interesting is the ability to now tokenize securities, right? So with a fund like ours, one of the things we're looking at doing this year is, is creating a security token offering, uh, which is a way of buying like a, a token, sort of like a Bitcoin, but it, it's not, um, you know, sort of this new currency kind of token. It's uh, backed by a security in the fund. And so uh, token holders would be, if we are to uh, proceed with it, would be able to uh, find their returns by using their token. Uh, so they'd have the liquidity of the cash flow elements of our fund, and uh, you know they'd they'd also be able to trade off the the tokens on exchanges, and that's that's really where the industry is sort of immature and why we haven't proceeded with it. It's not that the technology isn't there; it's just that the regulatory frameworks haven't really caught up enough to to give us the comfort level, and that's that's why we're kind of uh, sitting on the side here and looking at like T zero and seeing how they do before we we go all in because. We'd like to uh, obviously adopt this new technology, but we'd also want to make sure that there's a market for this type of offering. Right. I think that might be one of the biggest challenges is, you know, conveying to the investing public what what a security token offering is and and why it's so great. Um, you mentioned tokenization of of securities, tokenization of assets. You know, being able to own a very small amount of a particular project or a particular building. The the increased liquidity is is a big is a big thing. Being able to buy and sell these on the on an exchange or to other investors, um, I, I think there's also you know we we touched upon this briefly earlier. Just cutting out the middleman reduces a lot of costs and improves the speed of the transactions as well. Um, is is there a potential to change how properties are sold and how deals get recorded? Yeah, absolutely. You know, think about the MLS, right? Every location geographically uh, in the United States has sort of their own MLS, stores different data, there's different fees, there's different people who run it. Uh, In essence, um, blockchain could be a replacement for that, you know, if executed well, and if there was the right kinds of incentives, uh, there could be one ledger that records all those transactions and offers real uh, insights and standardization. But 
you know, that, that's that's just an example of, of recording the transactions. If you're talking about actually facilitating the transactions, you know, you can buy property today with a Bitcoin or uh, with with uh, Ethereum or other types of cryptocurrencies, you know, Monero and, and others. It just depends on if you'll find someone who will who will sell to you. It's once you complete the transaction, uh, it's getting through all that paperwork. Right. And that's still a very manual process compared to how it could be once the legislative side kind of catches up. And this is where I, I talk to people who are, you know, in the business of uh, sort of title companies. And, and this is sort of where blockchain is really going to be disruptive and really provide a lot of value to the industry where there's much more efficiency and transparency and, uh, and the ability for um, more deals to get done faster. And automation as well, right? Absolutely. So what are some of the biggest hurdles that the technology faces uh, in, in becoming adopted and becoming the new standard? Yeah, well, first of all, most people perceive blockchain as a relatively new technology. They're not really aware that it's been around. And even 11 years isn't that long for a technology to exist, right? We, the internet itself uh, traces its its roots back to uh, DARPA projects. So what I, I think what we will find in the next 10 to, to 30 years is uh, that the industry will just become completely dependent upon these types of technologies to uh, provide further, further automation and uh, that will provide more efficiency in the market. You know, it, it ultimately is going to allow these institutions that exist today to uh, do more and you know charge lower fees. And can you guys take a few minutes and discuss your security token offering, the the security token offering um, that will be offered through Activated Capital, and what will it look like, and how will Opportunity Zone investors have access to it? Well, I'll touch on a couple of things. One, this is totally conceptual at this point, and we haven't finalized the plans. We, the regulatory problem is what keeps us from really pursuing this as a day one strategy. Uh, we've we've been looking at the market and trying to determine the best uh, course of action for a launch. Uh, and right now, we just haven't settled that there's enough uh, of a market for us to do this. So We'll, we'll probably decide by this summer, and you know, we, we won't. As far as technology goes, you know, there there is groups like uh, Harbor that uh, you know Harbor dot com. They they uh, have a platform. Um, there's other folks out there that do this. Uh, Polymath has a solution for more developer centric, where Harbor's a little a little more like white glove service. But uh, when it, when it comes down to it, uh, the technology isn't the problem. Uh, tokenizing an asset creating the smart contracts around it. It's all built. I mean, this is not new technology. Again, it's just the regulatory doesn't exist for it. And am I selling a security? And uh, how do I how do I handle that? And is there a market for, for these digital securities? It's very different than buying a Bitcoin or buying into these ICOs that were a big deal because these are regulated. Yeah, the ICOs were a little bit of the Wild West there for the last uh, year or so. Oh, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Just to talk more about the blockchain and avenue, I mean, we are um, allowing all of our investors annual liquidity and um, in certain cases, quarterly liquidity, if we you know, have that available. So we're, we're making it more liquid to have that step process to, in order to institutionalize and get investors more um, associated with that 
you know, liquidity options. So, I mean, that that's already in place. And then that blockchain is, is just going to enhance that even further. Just to add to what Lane said, I mean, when we look at opportunities on legislation, it's not finalized, but we, you know, we feel confident where we are today. We feel, you know, one of the being the earlier move, movers and not uh, being late to the game is important. So, you know, once we feel that level of, you know, confidence, similar to the opportunity zone legislation, because, I mean, that's essentially the same thing, too. Investing in real estate is is not new. Um, investing in businesses is not new. But the avenue that opportunity zones creates is new. And uh, regulation will always not be 100%. But we want it to be to a critical mass. And that's where we'll be one of the first movers, but not the first. That's That's really important. Yeah, buying and selling real estate's been around since uh right for thousands of years, I guess. But uh yeah, the the the, yeah. the vehicle is new. Uh absolutely and and it, it takes some time for the for the regulatory uh guidance to to catch up as we're kind of going through right now. We're we're waiting on the IRS to release their second tranche of of guidelines. Is is there anything in in those IRS regulations forthcoming that you're particularly looking forward to receiving some more clarity on? Um, you know, and just in terms of the liquidity. So, you know, a lot of numbers have been thrown out in terms of the amount of capital that's going to flow into some of the zones, 100 billion, 300 billion. And as of right now, a lot of funds are holding that for that 10-year period. So in our mind, there's got to be more flexibility on the sale within that 10-year period. Because if you put $100 billion into a market on day one, and then take that out in years 10, you know that's that's going to have a, a, an opposite impact on what the the actual legislation is trying to do. So, being able to tier it in certain cases and have that flexibility to exit, and we feel that we've got that strategy teed up, but uh, we want to see that a uh, bit more in clarity on that front. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that the new guidance that's coming out here in the next week or so will allow for, you know, sale of assets, um, you know, one, one at a time, as opposed to, you know, having to sell the, uh, the equity investment in the fund. I think that's, that's a big issue, especially for, you know, multi-asset funds and these, these larger, you know, hundred billion plus dollar funds. I think that's, that would be important to see. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and see what happens here in the next couple of weeks uh, as we wait for these, for this next tranche to come out. Right. Yeah. We're cautiously optimistic as we like to say. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, great. This has been this has been great discussion so far, guys. Uh, I, we're going to kind of wrap things up here uh, in the next few minutes, but I, I wanted to ask both of you uh, kind of a retrospective question that I pose to most of my guests who come on. What's been your favorite or most memorable investment uh, so far in, in your careers? Is, is there anything in particular that stands out? And, and Josh, I'll, I'll let you speak first. Yeah, I, you know, there's there's been a few. I mean, we've talked a lot about the impact and, and how we're, you know, going about in our approach. I mean, one of the ones that I, I think about a lot and is a deal that I did, and we wanted to try to take a first lean or a first position on a community foundation that would lend to a low income or affordable housing project. And and this is probably the memorable one because it didn't work out. Um, you know, we. We took the first position, but there wasn't alignment. There wasn't a rent-to-own model. There was not a um, that that moral hazard, if you will. There was no education piece. There was really no incentive 
to build equity. So, you know, that was um, a deal that we invested just over $50 million in a community foundation. We actually lost money on that because we had to take that that first lien, that first uh, level of collateral. But, you know, just knowing where the alignment is and how important that is and, and what we're doing now is, is really key. But, I mean, that would probably, out of all of the deals and, you know, the what you now call opportunity zones, that's something that really resonates and we'll be mindful of moving forward. And where was that? It's in St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis, right. And Lane, how about you? Is there uh, any any investment from your career that that sticks out? Anything memorable? Yeah, you know, there's a really killer deal that um, I, I think about a lot. It's uh, when I was advising uh, Ohio Cashflow, uh, they they would um, you know work in these opportunity what are now opportunity zones, and there was this uh, opportunity zone single family home. We got about a three hundred percent IRR out of it. You know. Um, this is a working class neighborhood type property and it just didn't have great, um, you know, aesthetics and it needed work and, and going in, getting it renovated. Um, it, it was, it, we were able to uh, produce incredible returns very quickly in about two months. Uh, and, and properties like that are, are what got me really excited about this industry as a whole, you know, uh, in, in this, in these markets, what 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 Ohio Cashflow and other organizations do to generate demand initially, you know, they'll send out like yellow letter campaigns. These uh, campaigns that are sending physical yellow letters in the mail to get uh, to see if people are willing to sell their properties. All cash deals, you know, uh, distressed properties. People may not even be living in them anymore, uh, you know, and then. Uh, going in and making them, you know, great homes for for hardworking families. These are uh, not, um, you know, new construction, but that doesn't mean they can't be safe and clean. And activated is kind of a continuation of that that model in a lot of ways, right? That's that's what uh, we're trying to do here with the double bottom line returns. Great. Well, could you guys uh, tell my listeners now where they can go to? learn more about Activated Capital, more about your Opportunity Zone Fund and and the impact investing that you guys are doing. Yeah, just activatedcapital.com. There's uh, links for info and investment. Uh, there's a couple of resources, but you know, we're happy to speak with anyone just to talk about more of the process, but that, that's a, a good starting point. Great. Uh, and for my listeners out there, I'll have links to I'm Activated and free and Activated Capital, of course, uh, on the show notes page for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Well, Josh and Lane, it's it's been a pleasure. Thank you for taking some time out of your day-to-day to, to speak with me and my listeners. I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I hope to talk with you guys again soon. No, thank you, Jimmy. That's great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.